Welcome to At Length with Steve Scher. This is Series 2. We are again taking the time to talk with authors, scholars, and artists who are coming to Town Hall Seattle over 2017 and 2018. We have a podcast we call In the Moment. I hope you'll check it out. It features highlights of the preceding two weeks of events at Town Hall and an excerpt from an interview I am doing with upcoming guests to Town Hall. On this podcast, The Complete Conversation. I hope you like them. Let me know. Drop me a line at sscher at gmail.com, sshare at gmail.com, and tell me what you think. You can also follow me on Twitter at Stephen underscore share. All right, in this episode, a conversation with Russian-American journalist Masha Gessen about the return of totalitarianism to Russia. I talked to her via Skype. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for talking to me. No problem. The Future is History by journalist Masha Gessen is a journey through Russia's recent political changes. The book follows four young Russians who were born in the 80s. Their lives mirror the ups and downs most Russians experienced as the country opened up ever so briefly and then closed down around itself again. The full title of your book is The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. When was the moment that totalitarianism was maybe losing its grip on Russia? There was a moment of great opening, I think, uh, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. I mean, there... um, I mentioned in the book that um, for a lot of uh, both Russian intellectuals and Western journalists and Western scholars, at the moment of the, uh, the defeat of the hardline coup in August 1991 seemed like the point of no return, seemed like the collapse of the Soviet Union. That was not necessarily how most Russians experienced it. Right? Um, I think they experienced it as yet another chapter in an unfolding drama of a struggle for power in the Soviet Union between Gorbachev, who was in many people's eyes too much of a reformer and in many people's eyes not enough of a reformer, right? who was really zigzagging and trying to sort of go back and forth and satisfy all of his constituencies, and Yeltsin and, and you know, pro-democracy activists and hardline communists. So it was yet another chapter in the struggle. And I think that it all came to a um, crushing halt in October 1993 when Yeltsin, then president of Russia, uh, shelled the building in which a rebellious parliament had barricaded itself in. Um, I think that was when sort of the window of opportunity, the very, very, very short brief the window of opportunity closed. How come? Why the shelling? As a as a closing of that chapter, um, well, he used um, force. He used violence. He used firearms to settle a political argument. Uh, his actions were clearly and intentionally unconstitutional, and so uh, the you know the great hope of democracy in Russia. Uh, used unconstitutional methods and used firearms to try to assert his power. In his mind, and in the minds of many of his supporters, and I think to this day in the minds of many people, his actions were justified because they were done in the name of democracy. 
because he wanted reform. He wanted a market system. He wanted elections, and the rebellious parliament didn't, and that is true. But of course, as we know, you know, from revolutions um, over the last few centuries, uh, the use of force to advance a, um, you know, an idealistic and democratic cause generally destroys that cause. Give me a quick sketch of the pe- of the of the people you follow. Let's start with Jana. Jana, is that how you say it? Yes, Jana is the daughter of um, Boris Nemtsov. A, uh, who in the early 1990s was a hugely promising politician in Russia. In the late 1990s, many people believed that he was going to be uh, Yeltsin's successor. And then, as we all know, he was assassinated in 2015 um, after having been for many years not just marginalized, but, you know, hounded and haunted uh, and portrayed as a traitor to the motherland. And, and so Jeanne uh, is a young woman who's now living in exile, running a foundation named for her father. Um, but somebody who grew up very close to, to power uh, in the 1990s. And somebody who has been part of that struggle for democracy for many years, yes? I would say she has observed that struggle for democracy. Um, she... Uh, She's much less of a maverick than her father was. Um, she, I think, for many years believed her, that her father was too confrontational. She, uh, uh, she would have, uh, she would have been more conciliatory. She would have been sort of more mainstream. She wanted to be an ordinary girl, um, and it was really the experience of watching her father come under increasing attack and finally get killed uh, that made her into the fighter that she is now. And Masha? So Masha Baronova um, is to me a fascinating character. She is, uh, she was born in 1984, as Jana was, uh, and she, um, she grew up in a, in a sort of uh, Soviet engineering family, kind of a standard uh, uh, sort of family for, uh, for Russia. But and she was a really resolute member of the mainstream. She, uh, in the early 2000s, she made money when everybody made money. She took bribes when everybody took bribes. She joined the protests when everybody joined the protests. And then when the protests were over and she um, and everybody went back to their regular lives, and by everybody I mean you know the vast majority, sort of the visible, uh, um, the visible masses. Um, she had been charged with inciting a riot, and she no, there no longer was a way back for her into the mainstream. Uh, and so she is, um, in a very profound way, a victim of Putin's crackdown uh, of the last five years. She, uh, she had her sort of um, option and her great, you know, something that was very desirable for her, which was to be a part of the larger whole, she had that shut off to her. Hmm. Uh, and and what about the other two? Uh, Seryosha, am I saying her name right? That name right? Sy- yeah. So Seryosha Yakovlev is the grandson of um, uh, of Alexander Nikolaevich Yakovlev. Alexander Nikolaevich Yakovlev, to students of Russia, is a hugely important figure. Um, he um, 
he he was considered sort of the intellectual, uh, the intellect behind Perestroika. And his grandson Serioja grew up with that, with the, with those ideals, uh, and um, but also with that incredible amount of privilege. He was uh, the grandchild of a member of the Central Committee. He summered at Gorbachev's dacha. Uh, and so his experience of um, the collapse of the Soviet Union is quite different from the from from the experience of the other three uh, young characters. He also, um, um, after his grandfather died, he kind of stayed out of politics, and he woke up to politics quite suddenly, as the protest movement was getting underway. Um, and the. The sort of the failure of the protest, or what he perceived as the failure of the protest, really destroyed him personally. Has um, sent him into kind of main mental health tailspin, but he hasn't recovered from. Um, and the fourth young character is Lyosha, um, who was a brilliant young scholar in the city of Perm, who started the uh, queer studies center, the gender studies center at um, Perm State University. At a moment when it seemed like anything was possible, um, the city of Perm was in this very strange position of uh, it was it had the ambition of becoming the cultural cap uh, European cultural capital, and so. Uh, sorry about uh, that. Um, and so, um, uh, so the city of Perm uh, had the ambition of becoming a European cultural capital. Um, and there was sort of a great liberalization of everything in the city of Perm, and Lyosha started the Gender Studies Center, and then the anti-gay campaign began. And he found himself literally running for his life and landing on Brighton Beach. Hmm. Right, right. And uh, you also focus on a, uh, on a psychoanalyst, and, and you talk about the, the, the state of sociology, psychology in Russia today. Well, how would you describe the state of the social sciences in Russia? So, uh, in addition to the four young characters, there are also the three intellectuals in the book. Right? Um, and uh, part of the, the biggest reason that I chose uh, to try to get into the heads of these three intellectuals is because I wanted to show... Um, what happens to a society that is robbed of the ability to comprehend itself? Right? So it's one thing to say, you know, that they, that Soviet people lived under totalitarianism, but it's another thing to try to understand that not only did they live under totalitarianism, but that the social sciences um, and the humanities in general were destroyed, and they were purposefully destroyed, to prevent people from thinking about the condition of living under totalitarianism. Purposefully destroyed. Purposefully destroyed. So, um, so I follow the trajectory of these three intellectuals as they sort of claim their disciplines. There's a philosopher, a sociologist, and a psychoanalyst. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's, for them I think at some points it's, a, it's an exhilarating process and it's an incredibly painful protest, pro process, perhaps for the psychoanalyst more than for anybody else, because one she realizes at some point in, in the mid-1990s, after she's been practicing for a long time, and she has her basic psychoanalytic international credentials, uh, she attends this um, school for psychoanalysts from countries 
where the psychoanalytic tradition has been broken, has been interrupted, which is, um, which is organized by a bunch of Western psychoanalysts. And she sees, um, she observes Western psychoanalysts with clients, with patients, and she, real, and she sees how good they are and how much better they are than she is. And she realizes that it's not because they're smarter than she is or because they're more motivated than she is or because they work harder than she does. It's because they stand on the shoulders of their predecessors who stand on the shoulders of their predecessors who stand on the shoulders of giants and she stands on nothing. Um, and and it's, it's a painful moment and I think in a way it, it's a stand-in for what a lot of Russians experienced in a lot of different ways, right? When they traveled west and they thought they were in somewhere or another, you know, once the Soviet Union collapsed, they were going to be free to be who they wanted to be, to do what they wanted to do, to have what they wanted to have. Um, and um, and none of it turned out to be quite as, as easily accessible. And, um, and the feelings of resentment and envy were really intense. Sorry about this. That's okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's real. To reclaim history, in a sense. They saw themselves as hoping to reclaim history, to be able to stand on the shoulders of those giants that the Westerners were able to stand on as well? I think that um, they weren't thinking of it as reclaiming history. They were very much thinking of it as reclaiming what was theirs, what was rightfully theirs. Um, For some people, it was intellectual activity and for some people for most people it was material wealth right they should live as well as other people and then they go to a place like you know spain a poor european country and they come to this very painful realization that um uh, that that's people in a poor european country like spain uh, live better than what they thought of as wealthy people in the Soviet Union. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I was in Russia in April on a journalism fellowship, and I met some people, a few people I met told me stories about, and, and they were three people, same narrative. Russia won World War II while the Allies dilly-dallied. And the other story was that if there is corruption in Russia, these folks were telling me, some of them, by the way, uh, had gone to school in America for a while. Mm-hmm. If there is corruption in Russia, it's due to the people that surround Vladimir Putin, but that the president himself has only the interests of the people at heart. Um, that sort of sounds like uh, the way many people look at autocrats in their country. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you make of those two beliefs? Well, uh, that Russia won World War II while the Allies dilly-dallied uh, is narrative that's very important to contemporary Russian mythology and I, I spent a fair amount of time on that in the book on yeah. the role of World War II in contemporary mythology and the way that uh, sociologist Lev Gutkov puts it it's um, it's 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 sort of the perfect historical myth because it, it shines its lights forwards and backwards uh, it uh, it, it explains how Russia became a superpower, but it also justifies the terror that came before World War II. Right? And so if you ask people questions about that, more often than not, you will hear them say, well, of course Stalin had to you know, put millions of people in the gulag because he was preparing for war. 
She's an entirely, you know, there's no historical evidence for this whatsoever. I mean, first of all, there's no connection. Second of all, there's no evidence that Stalin was preparing for war. And yet, that's how the myth works, right? And um, and the part about the Allies dilly-dallying, um, that's been pushed by Putin in the last few years, especially to the emphasis on the number of Soviet casualties compared to the number of casualties um, uh, on the part of the Allies, you know, which can be read in many different ways, including, and this is how I read it, you know, that was Soviet warfare. Soviet warfare was uh, based on cannon fodder. Um, that was how the battle at Stalingrad was won, by just delivering hundreds of thousands of people there per day to get killed right, until, until the Nazis, um, who were also delivering you know, non-Germans there, uh, uh, ran out of, 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 of staying power. Um, that's how uh, one, one um, World War II veteran, one, uh, Soviet World War II veteran once told me, she said, we didn't win the war. They choked on our blood. Hmm. Um, so that's one way to read it, and that's how I read it. But the way that I think the uh, you know the myth proposes it be read is that um, the ultimate expression of patriotism and heroism is being willing to sacrifice your life, and uh, and that makes Russians as a people superior to Westerners, because Russians have proven their patriotism and have proven their heroism by sacrificing their lives in such immense, unimaginable numbers. You also write about the value of war to this regime. You talk about Hannah Arendt. What, what is the value of, the overarching value of the notion of war or conflict to this regime? So, my argument is that when, um, after 2012, when Putin started backing, started sort of backing into a kind of new totalitarianism, right? Uh, which is quite different from, you know, Stalin's totalitarianism which was part of establishing a totalitarian state, but Putin is backing into it as an instrument, as a way of controlling the country. Right? It's available to him, because the society that he's dealing with is a society shaped by totalitarianism. And so when he starts backing into it, um, he, he develops a need for mobilization. Mobilization is a key element of totalitarian society. Uh, and mobilization is best achieved through wars. Uh, there can be a literal war against an external enemy, or it can be a symbolic war against you know the enemy within. Stalin fought both kinds of wars, and throughout Soviet history, both kinds of wars were fought. Um, Putin uh, launched a war against the enemy within, and also started a war with Ukraine. And once that happened, once he did that, his popularity skyrocketed. And it has, stayed, it has stayed sky high. It has stayed totalitarian level popularity, right? In a democratic country, you don't have a leader with 84% or 86% popularity. That is, um, that is like taking the temperature of totalitarianism in society. Um, and um, so, so um, that's, that's what he depends on war to deliver, a sense of unity, a sense of mobilization, and therefore his unchecked power. Do you think that works in any society where a, a, a person can uh, 
manipulate the conversation through autocratic means, or is it specific to Russia? Um, This, unfortunately, we have a lot of experience with, right? We know how wars work. Um, We know that, uh, generally speaking, any war, even a war that is fated to become unpopular very, very quickly, initially produces a spike in popularity of the national leader and a, a growing sense of national unity. And by even a war that's fated to become very unpopular very quickly, I, of course, I'm referring to the Iraq War right, in the United States. Um, even that ill-advised, uh, you know, poorly justified, um, unjustifiable, you know, on the face of it at the time that it was started, even that war, you know, produced a kind of spike. And then, and then a great sense of buyer's remorse uh, that, that, that continues to this day. Um, so that, um, that tool of, uh, of boosting popularity is available to any leader. How effective that tool is in the long term depends on how my, uh, the extent to which the leader controls public discourse. Discourse including education, discourse including a control on uh, history or the way history is taught. Share. Exactly, and of course, and of course, media. And media. But when I talk to the Russian journalists, bloggers, students of media, in that conversation, I ask them, "So, uh, you know, freedom of the press? Do you do you hope for it? Do you believe in it?" And most of the people there, the bloggers and the students, did not believe in the concept of a free press. And when I argued that in America, the reason we have a free press is if I was suppressed, that would be the story too. For that was one of my examples, and they just. They just didn't buy it. They didn't accept the notion that a press in America could be free. What do you think about that notion, and what do you think? Um, Again, for Putin uh, and for his mythology, it's very important. And not just for his mythology, but for his worldview, right? uh, And the contemporary Russian worldview. It's very important to debunk the very notion of, uh, of democratic society, right? So I promise you that if you had asked them not about free media, but about elections, they would say, oh, come on. You know, what elections? You know it's all fixed. They did right? say that. Right. Um, and if you, are, you know, if you ask them about any institution of democracy, they would argue that not only was the institution of democracy a fiction you know, and a fundamentally corrupt institution in their country, but it was fundamentally corrupt by definition. Okay. Um, why is that um, why is it so important to uh, uh, to sort of contemporary Russian mythology? I think probably because um, because that sense of, uh, of resentment and envy that dates back to the 1990s, to feeling really inferior in, um, in, in, in like specific ways to, uh, to the West, right? to discovering that you are poor and wars dressed and you, you know less. I mean, you actually know less. You've been being told all these years in, um, that you got the best possible education in the Soviet Union. And then you discover that you didn't, right? Um, 
the best way to defend uh, against that is to say you are just as bad as I am, right? because uh, the alternative demands an incredible amount of uh, power and strength, and um, you know, I mean, it, it, dema it de demands growth, right? It's something that, for example, Rutenian is capable of. She sticks with psychoanalysis. She embraces the need to work even harder um, to to get half as good uh, to to be half as good as some of the people that she's been observing. But for most people, you know, the way to to react is to turn around and say, "You, uh, it's all hypocrisy. You're pretending to be better than you really are." Um, and um, you know, I think that this is something that's actually very useful to understand when we talk about you know, Russian interference in U.S. elections. Why is that? Uh, because, um, because Americans try to understand that interference in American terms. So the Russians must have had an electoral goal, right? They must have had the objective of electing Trump. Uh, but the Russians didn't have an objective or an electoral goal. The Russians had a desire. And the desire, fundamentally, is to prove their view of the world, their theory of everything. And their theory of everything is that everything is corrupt. And so that's why, you know, you would, uh, they would use, you know, Facebook to, um, to cater to all sorts of, uh, uh, of, 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 of hateful and marginalized groups. Not because they have some, like, brilliant master plan that helps them understand that supporting, you know, Jill Stein or even supporting Bernie Sanders at a certain point, is, uh, you know, or, or fomenting Bernie bros is going to help get Donald Trump elected. No, it's because it corresponds to their picture of the world. That, um, you know, that a spoiler can be effective, that, um, that aggression toward your political opponents is what politics is fundamentally about, et cetera, et cetera. And so they throw um, fuel on those fires because they understand those fires. All right, and last quick question, how does that, relate or how what is the parallel then for Donald Trump who follows a similar path and who you said was the first president to run for autocrat and win right. I mean in this particular I, I think that Trump shares some of Putin's worldview uh, in a really bizarre way he also thinks that everyone is fundamentally corrupt uh, he also thinks that the world is rotten I think, uh, I mean, he also thinks that, uh, as Putin does, that uh, that po politics is about exercising raw power. Uh, I think he sincerely doesn't understand why we don't use nukes to settle conflicts, um, and so on. But um, but I think their moral vacuousness actually does unite them, and you know, uh, it's a little disconcerting uh, after having written you know 550 pages about what created that kind of moral vacuousness in um, in Russia, and then to see it created in an um, American president through an entirely different sort of reasons, an entirely different set of circumstances, uh, and see it landing in an entirely different political culture, landing in different ways, but, you know, but, but with, clear, with clear perils. I appreciate you taking the time. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Masha Gessen. She's a Russian-American journalist. Her new book is The Future is History. Thanks for listening to At Length. 
And do check out our podcast, In the Moment, from Town Hall. Check out all of Town Hall's podcasts. They feature all the speakers who come and talk at the institution. Right now, Town Hall is being remodeled, so folks are popping up at venues all over the city of Seattle. If you haven't had a chance yet, check it out. It's a great way to get to know your neighbors and to hear what people are talking about. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening.